Welcome everyone to another episode of Kiwi Talks. I am speaking to business maestro and chair of Sky City and New Zealand Tourism Holdings, as well as much more. Rob Campbell, how are you doing? I'm doing very well, thank you. Thanks for the opportunity to chat. That's all right. I always like speaking to very business savvy people. I feel like I'm smarter by the end of it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm not sure about that. I I think... uh, I'm I'm experienced. Whether I'm savvy, uh, let's not uh, let's not run a poll on that right at the moment. <laughs> You're modest. I like it. I like it. Because how how how's it everything been for you in terms of uh, being chair for Sky City and New Zealand Tourism Holdings during this unprecedented time? Well, look, uh, pretty obvious at one level. It's not helpful when your revenue stops in any business mm. um, and. When you don't know quite how long it's stopped for, it kind of is a is a double up, um, and that's the real problem. I think these two businesses have faced, um, uh, and you then have to make some pretty radical reassessments. First, about financial survival because you've got big costs that keep running on, and your revenue stops. This kind of a and inevitability about uh, about financial problems uh, within a relatively short period of time. So you've got to address that, um, either from borrowings or new equity or cost reductions. But pretty quickly and almost simultaneously, you have to pivot your business to make it more flexible for that really uncertain future. So you've got to kind of have two... Hopefully, you've got two sides to your brain. Um, sometimes we all struggle with that, but <laughs> you've got to you've got to have that protective bit working pretty hard. But also, you've got to have the creative bit uh, working pretty hard. Um, and the decisions you have to make um, are often unpleasant, uh, particularly when you're having to lay off staff. But even when you're having to make financial decisions about debt or about raising new equity, et cetera, they're quite uh, unpleasant decisions uh, quite often, ones you'd rather not be making. Um, but often they, you know, in a funny way, they become unpleasant decisions but not hard because your your range of choice has, has lessened a whole lot. The decisions are not that complex. They become kind of go, no go, do this or die decisions. Black and white. Uh, yeah, they're, you know, so are they tough decisions? No. Are they pleasant decisions? No. So we've been working our way through that. Um, the teams have, have done really well. The, you become more acutely aware of the fact that your business is composed of people, not numbers. Um, it's easy to forget that when things are going okay. Uh, you have to get people to do things they probably often rather not do, under great pressure. They've got pressure at home as well as at work, pressure from the media, noise all around them. Uh, and, again, in my sort of role, you have to have to think about the sort of pressure that's on the, the people in your team uh, too. You know, the first couple of days are okay because the adrenaline's coursing through everyone's veins. Um, but that wears off uh, and then fatigue and uncertainty and fear set in. And that's, uh, I think, a big challenge for a lot of businesses now. So sorry for that sort of fairly rambling answer, but that's that's been what we've been confronting and, and our teams have done very well. Because how do you prepare for something that there's no kind of set date? We don't know how long we're in this for. So to try and to be flexible with a business when you don't really know what the the outcome's going to be, how long this is going to go on for. I mean, you talk about diversifying, but it's it's good to do that when you kind of have an idea of what's coming. But in this case, we don't know. I mean, this vaccine, who knows when that's coming? And even then, it will take months and months for it to be rolled out fully. Yeah, uh, so a couple of... A couple of things about that. Um, we like to fool ourselves that we have certainty about the future, but in any in any circumstance, our knowledge about the future is quite imperfect, <laughs> and often yes, what we I think agree. often what we think is is likely to happen is not as likely 
uh, as we would like to think it is. Uh, so, yes, it's different in scale and, and intensity, but you've always got that uncertainty in a business. Um, so the second thing is in the public company, and this is a bit counterintuitive in a way, but in the public company area where I work, uh, primarily you've, you've, you've got these kind of controls, which can be a bit irksome for a director, but um, you won't get an audit report. So the two companies we're talking about both have financial years that ending in June 30, so we were in the, in the midst of it at that point. We've got to have auditors' reports, um, and the auditors won't sign off that you're a going concern unless you can demonstrate that you have the funding available to survive for at least the current financial year. Mm. So in a way, you know, we're a small business, you might not have that kind of certainty. Um, in a public company, you sort of have, you have to create it. <laughs> you've got to get the borrowing lines, you've got to get the equity, you've got to get the cash flow or, you know, a fairly hard-assed auditors going to say, well, you're not really a going concern and the impact of that on the market is, is going to be extremely negative. So you're kind of forced into creating this maybe artificial, but nevertheless, this sort of island of certainty over the next 12 months, at least. You're forced to get into that really quickly. That's, as I say, it's a, a bit helpful in some ways. Um, out beyond that, so you do then have, you create that level of certainty that you can still be alive this time next year. And, and that's not a concern about those two companies, but nevertheless, we had to make sure it wasn't. So you do have a little bit of time to work it out. And, and now what we're having to do in, in both those companies is say, well, let's assume that for, you know, without giving away any state secrets for two or three years, we didn't have any overseas tourists. Mm. What would our business have to look like to stand up over that length of time? That's sort of the next stage of it. Because if you can't do that and it does turn out we don't have any overseas tourists for two or three years, well, you've got a big problem. Yeah, so well, we're, cur we're currently engaged in that. We've, we've In both businesses, we've managed to sort of remodel our business such that we would be okay. Not as we would like it to be, but we would be okay um, in that circumstance. Now, beyond three years, crikey, uh, who knows? But what you try and do about that is to retain the optionality to grow if you're wrong and there is tourism return, which I think there will be, but don't know. So you've got to try and leave enough of your business intact that if tourism does come back, you're in a position to take advantage of it. But you take tourism holdings, there's no point in selling all your fleet to survive the first year and then find tourism comes back and they all want camp vans and you haven't got any. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> so, you've, yeah, you've got to try and find that optionality, um, which, again, I think in both of those businesses we've, we've managed to do. So we're feeling pretty good about where we are. We're not there yet, but mm. uh, we're feeling pretty good about the direction. So there are quite a few people out there that don't really realize, I think, what a chairperson is or what they do. Are you able to elaborate a little bit on what that role entails? I'm not sure I should tell you the state secrets. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it, it, might be a very, it might be a very good thing for me if no one knows what I do. Uh, but look, no, seriously, um, it looks on the, on the, on the organisation chart, it looks like you've got a lot of power. Um, like most organisation charts, that's mainly bullshit. And if you do have a lot of power, <laughs> there's probably something wrong because businesses don't work like that. Uh, if they do for a short term, they won't. They won't last unless you've got a whole array of people involved doing the things that they're good at and cooperating together. So for a for a person chairing a again we're talking about public company boards here because that's really what I do yeah um, you uh, have a, a coaching role for your senior executives particularly your chief executives you're an advisor and part coach to those people guiding decisions they make decisions that are ultimately theirs but you you try and guide and help them that's the kind of the, the uh, these are in no particular order, but they're the ones that occur to me. 
Secondly, you've got a group of other directors uh, who have different skills and experience and, and uh, capabilities. Uh, you have to try and uh, get from those people the appropriate contribution. Uh, not, I mean, no one's a fully formed director that can be a really good advisor or monitor across any business of any size. So you, you've got a different group of people. You're trying to get the best out of each of them, um, but keep them together in a in a team of some kind. A divided board is absolutely hopeless, both to the business and very uh, unsettling for management. So you've you got to be on a, Have you been on a divided board? Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, people don't always agree with me. So, uh, <laughs> <that's>, <laughs> how can that no, be, Rob? No, 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 look, I, I have been on uh, divided boards, and and uh, they are, you know, like any divided team. There, that's an unpleasant experience, and it's it's unsettling for other people involved. So, you've got to, your job as as chair is is to avoid that and to keep people people working together. And then you've also got a role representing the business with um, investors, with regulators, politicians, other stakeholders, because you have a kind of a, or figureheads, probably not quite the right word, but you do have a leadership position externally to the company uh, mm. as well. So those, those are the main things that you do. Um, there are no formal rules about it. Every chair does it, um, does it in different ways, and, and I find I'm a little bit different in each company, depending on what the skills and capabilities are and what the, what the urgency of, of the business is. But Make, those makes are the sense. things I do. Makes sense. Because one of the great things I think about you is, and, and uh, I don't think you really see it a lot with business people, as they move up the food chain, they kind of become a bit more guarded, I feel probably because they're at the mercy of shareholders or the board or whatever. But I know you're quite an opinionated person, which I think is a great thing. And you have no problems with putting out opinion pieces or saying things that you firmly believe in. Yeah, look, doesn't, doesn't suit everyone. Um, uh, you know, uh, there is, I think, and so my view is, here's an opinion straight away. <laughs> <laughs> my view is that, you know the the regulators, the the financial authorities, the institute of directors, the stock exchange develop quite uh, formal patterns that they expect to adhere you to adhere to, and uh, they're usually called something like best practice or governance best practice or, or something of that kind. And there, you know, there are rules that are distilled from past experience. Um, uh, but they've made they're a little bit one size, in my opinion, uh, one size fits all. But people do get schooled into those over a career in management or advice or whatever it is, and then then on boards. Um, they boards many boards are run quite formally in those ways. Um, uh, so. Look, I don't, I don't disrespect uh, that approach, but it, it's not one that, that I could do, and I've been lucky enough to find enough companies to uh, accommodate my, you know, slightly more opinionated activist kind of way of thinking about about the role. Uh, but you know, you, frankly, you probably wouldn't put me in charge of a bank. Uh, you know, there, there are some institutions where people might feel they wanted more conservatism of thought. And that's that's fine too. Yeah, I'd imagine you'd have a pretty good bullshit. I wouldn't meeting. mind a job. I wouldn't mind a job chairing a bank, but I, <laughs> <laughs> but, but you can understand. You know, there are businesses that wouldn't necessarily want someone who who was happy to express a view that wasn't necessarily uh, the orthodoxy. Yeah, that, yeah. But you you'd have a good bullshit meter. Would you be able to meet someone and be able to tell if they're lying or not? Uh, we'll get a sense of look, it. Look, I've got, I think I've got better uh, about that, but, you know, I have been, um, in the not too distant past, I've certainly made 
bad investments based on my judgment about uh, people um, and uh, particularly an early stage investment. I've reached the conclusion I'm not a particularly good judge of who are good entrepreneurs. I'm, I think my judgment about some other aspects of business is better, but my, my judgment about people in the kind of venture capital space uh, uh, hasn't been very good, so I don't do it anymore. Uh, there are other people much better at it than me. Uh, I, so I, th I think I've developed skills in that area, but they're not universal or always reliable. Yeah. Have you spoken, I suppose you have, you've spoken to a few politicians, have you, over your, t over your time? Given them advice? Uh, <laughs> Uh, look, I, I have, um, I have, uh, you know, uh, I think one of the things that happens in New Zealand and probably around the world from my observation is that people who uh, succeed in business or get into leadership positions in business develop a view that they know more about the world than they actually do know. And they develop a view which is quite arrogant about how much better business is at doing things than other parts of society. And so when businesses talk to politicians, they're normally, uh, while they will cloak it in, this is good for New Zealand, this is good for the community, what they really mean is this is good for me and my business. And so you tend to get from businesses who are talking to politicians special pleading. And I've said to many politicians from both sides of the fence, don't you get really sick of businesses sidling up to you, trying to persuade you that something's in the common interest when really it's just in their interest? And they all say, absolutely, drives us nuts. Um, wish they would stop doing it. Doesn't do them any good. Um, yeah, I think that's all so voters, though. Voters <laughs> tend to vote for uh, self-interest. Yeah, that's right, and it's not that dangerous if there's just one of you, but if you're the head of a multi-billion dollar business, um, you know, you either do carry a bit more weight or you develop the view that you should carry a bit more weight and, uh, you know, you can certainly access the media, uh, are quite happy to listen to what you've got to say, uh, particularly when you think a particular politician is wrong, it's good fodder. Um, you know, business gets more than a fair say in our society. Is really what I'm saying. Uh, yeah, you have you have said that uh, business is a major cause of evil in society. That is a statement that you have said. Yep. Uh, can you elaborate on that? Yeah. To be fair to me, which there's no real necessary need to do, but I would prefer it. Uh, when I said that, is what I said and wrote, and I've repeated it is. Most of the bad things that happen in society, the evil things that happen in society are, are driven in some sense by business, but also many of the good things. So many of the improvements in health and communication, all those things, uh, there's a lot of housing, whole, anything you can kind of mention. There's all sorts of good things that have been driven by business. But you have to accept that war machines are driven by business. Inequalities are driven by business. Exploitation is driven by business as well. So, you know, Business is a, is a potentially great force for good, but it is also and demonstrably a, a, um, an enormous force for evil as well. It's a dangerous weapon. Uh, and I suppose, I suppose it's about perspective as well, is because certain people will think that you're doing a good thing and other people will think you're doing a bad thing, depending on what side of the fence they're on. Yeah, uh, yeah, a a absolutely. But, I mean, I'm still kind of old-fashioned enough to believe that there is some sort of thing called objective reality. I don't think that all – I'm not quite in the post-truth generation, so uh, I do sort of still take the view that some things are demonstrably right and demonstrably wrong, and business ends up on both sides of that. It's the nature of economic life and social life that we do. Uh, but what I take out of it is that if you're in business, you should not assume – that what's good for business is good for the community. It's often not. You've said that you like to work with a lot of younger people in business. Is that because they're more idealists? Uh, 
They often are more idealistic. Um, it keeps you, so to be frank, um, when you get old, working with younger people does help to keep you a little bit younger too. So from a, there's a personal... There's a I'll, personal keep that, I'll keep that in mind. <laughs> there's, a, there's, a, there's a personal thing in it. If you, you know, if you mix only with old people, I think the world starts to slow down and shrink around you. So uh, young people are useful to me from that point of view. The thing I like about uh, working with young people is that uh, the future belongs to them. Um, you know, I'm just about 70 and I've got no plans to shuffle off, but it, when you're 70, you don't need plans to shuffle off. You're still going to shuffle off whether you've got a plan to or not. Uh, so I don't think in our societies, it's, it's one thing to respect older people for what they can contribute, uh, but the people who will live the future should be driving the big decisions about the future. Uh, so I do think it's really important in business as it is in other parts of society to have uh, good listening uh, skills for younger people and also to allow younger people to take leadership positions as well because they just inherently have a longer view uh, than people who are getting towards the end of their life. I think there's sometimes a divide between the two groups as well, right? Because older people might look down on younger people because they're like, oh, you're young. You haven't been around as long as I have. You don't know the things that I do. You're not uh, wise in the worldly ways. And I think young people think, well, old people, you're so out of touch. That was decades ago. You need to start thinking like this. And sometimes I feel it can be difficult to get the two groups to kind of reach a mutual agreement. Oh, look, there's no doubt that uh, generational divide is an issue, and in particular when uh, significant social and technological change have speeded up uh, significantly, that shows up more quickly. Uh, so that what you should there are two ways you can react to that. One is to close up and, and say, young people are wrong, let's protect what we have. The other is to open up and say, well, this change I may not really understand. I may not be able to quite uh, get with it. Uh, but the truth is, in that respect, at least, I probably don't have a whole lot to contribute. So I think those older people who have acquired some wisdom hopefully have acquired the one of the wisdoms they've acquired is the wisdom to listen to young people and to allow young people room to make decisions that will impact their lives. Uh, if all your wisdom consists of is doing things your way, uh, doing things the old way, then I'd question whether you really have the wisdom that's worth respecting anyway. Is that, so, a, skill, is that a skill set you've always had? Or, do you, or is that something you had to learn over time? Oh, no, I mean... I mean in, in my uh, in my relative youth, I you know the saying when I was uh, a teenager and sort of leaving university was never trust anyone over thirty. Um, <laughs> and, uh, possibly wasn't a bad possibly wasn't a bad slogan, but it lost its appeal when I turned thirty. Yeah. Um, you know, and uh, so um, you know the Who used to sing a song, "My Generation," that included the line, "I hope I die before I get old," which they, they didn't and probably don't regret it at this stage either. So, um, look, I don't think I've, I'm particularly particularly good at that. I'm, I'm aware of it, but I keep being tripped up by, by failing to recognise quickly enough there are aspects of life today that I don't really understand as well as young people. Um, and so you, you keep running into those. They're often technology things, but they're, uh, they're, they're not always. Um, uh, you know, if I, uh, uh, if, if I think about it, uh, I think a lot of the, uh, the cultural issues that we have in our society, which has changed a lot from the society I uh, grew up in, um, I think younger people because they've grown up in a different society, have a much more flexible attitude to other cultures than people of my generation uh, did and, and still have. Um, 
And I mean, the most obvious thing that I just know people of my age struggle with and I have to really think about quite hard is, is gender fluidity, uh, which young people much more likely are to get and to understand and empathise with than, uh, than older people who grew up in a more constrained environment. I happen to think that's a great thing because it allows more people to live a, a full life as they are rather than as someone else thinks they should be. But, but it is a harder thing to uh, get your head around in an older generation. Yeah, so things like, say, the uh, LPL Studios, which is designed for eSports, yep. I'd imagine there'd be some older heads that might not get the point of something like that as opposed to younger people, which would probably understand it more. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> um, I mean, the, the LPL Studios in, at the bottom of Sky Tower, I'm really glad they're there. Um, and I find it a bit intriguing, uh, but I don't understand a word of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least you're honest about it. <laughs> and um, that's a really interesting example you raise because I think my fellow directors and managers would understand. So we're kind of good enough to think, yeah, esports, we can see that's happening all around the world. Yeah, we can see people play this. Yeah, pretty interesting. Let's be supportive of that because it's entertainment and it's gaming and it sort of fits with the casino entertainment kind of environment. There's no gambling on it really at the moment. We don't run any. People do gamble on it, incidentally. Offshore, hmm. there are people who are betting on games being played by the LPL people. Um, we don't we don't offer it. Not allowed to. That's not the point. But so we're sort of a, enough to say, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, that's growing. A lot of people like that. Don't know quite why. Um, but um, do we know how to build that as a business compared to, you know, we're quite good at hotels and restaurants and casino gambling and all that sort of thing. We're okay at it. Um, brilliant at it, sorry. Um, uh, yeah. But are we good at growing esports? No, we, we really struggle with knowing quite what to do and, and what we've got to do is kind of allow the people who do understand it to to develop that uh, in their own way. I can I can still remember when we first invested a Sky City in, in LPL and I went up and looked at, at what they were doing it and I, I made the remark, which subsequently turned out to be really stupid, is I don't understand how people can sit there and watch other people playing a game. And one of the people there said to me, do you ever go to Eden Park, Rob? And... I said, yeah, yeah, I love going to Eden Park. He said, what do you do there? It's like, ah, yes, I, I sit there watching other people play a game. <laughs> right. <laughs> Didn't seem quite real. But, you know, that it's probably not a bad little example of, of where there is a generational divide. So I think you've got to recognise whether you like it or not, whether you understand it or not, It's you can get the idea that it's happening. You can get the idea that there's real skill in it. You can get the idea there's real excitement in it. Um, so it is going to be part of ongoing entertainment, but you wouldn't ask. I mean, the, we're, a, we're a lovely group of people, the Sky City Board, but asking us to make the key decisions about what happens to esports in New Zealand would not be a bright idea. Right. So how does, so, how does something... So we don't. So we don't. So how does something like that come up? Does somebody just mention something like that at a board meeting? It's like, hey, we should do esports. And then everyone's like, yeah, okay. No, a, a younger person in our management team was aware of it and on the right. search, we we're always on the search for new things to do and look at in the entertainment area, what would work with us, what wouldn't. A younger person in the business uh, was aware of it, identified with it, met with the people and then we, we met uh, John McRae who was the, uh, was the founder there uh, and uh, he he did convince us that there was a business case for being involved in this in this business. Uh, it's in the very very early stages in New Zealand, but you know the young people that uh, that run it and participate in it now are doing a hell of a job. I mean, they the games they play are being watched all over the world on Twitch and other channels. See how yeah. I, even, I, even, I even remember Twitch was the big channel, so which it's probably yeah, well, not. It, right. it might have changed by now. It might be another one, but it's still big. Really well. And it's constantly evolving. It's one of those, I mean, it's bigger than film and, and television now. It's, it's a huge phenomenon. Yeah. Um, I spoke to a professor who's on the International Olympic Committee last year, and she was saying that 
they're looking at possibly bringing esports into into the Olympics. So, I mean, that kind of just shows you the elevation of that scene. So, do you yeah, know? Do you know what you pan- want? To- I've heard that in a pandemic world, it might be the only sport they can play. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it might force the Olympics to adapt uh, quicker than they would have liked, possibly. Yeah. So, do you know what the plan is with that studio? Or is that something you're just still kind of working out and trying to work out exactly what you want it to be? Well, well, the studio is is, is working really well. That aspect of it works really well. The issue is um, how do you scale it to uh, live events, which around the world live events do work very well. Mm. Um, you know, uh, we haven't, the, the team hasn't really been, we do have, have been some live events, but uh, it hasn't we haven't been able to scale it particularly well in, in that area. And then um, secondly, I think there's a whole licensing and marketing uh, area that we haven't been uh, particularly good at and, uh, you know, the team team are working on it. Uh, so, I mean, the whole purpose of it is to uh, to develop it and realise its potential, which is, we're nowhere near at the moment. Mm. I hope it becomes a bigger and bigger part of what we do. This is something I'd really like to ask politicians, but I'm wondering if there could ever be more funding into that sort of more government funding into gaming, because it seems like the next big thing that New Zealand could easily adapt to. I mean, if you think of uh, visual effects companies like Weta, there's a Mm. lot of crossover between the animation of visual effects and say video game design. Yeah, well, look, I mean, government's funding everything these days, isn't it? So, <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> um, but leaving the sort of immediacy aside, I mean, it, there's no particular, there's, look, there could be a relationship. To my knowledge, there's no relationship between WETA and LPL, but we, the WETA team are building a, a huge uh, uh, facility in Auckland just across the road from LPL, which will open in the next couple of months. Uh, Oh wow! Uh, okay, is a, is, a, is a kind of a this is they would probably roll their eyes at this, but I'm going to call it a virtual reality experience built by Weta. Built by Weta, they would probably roll their eyes at that wording, but nevertheless, it's it's going to be very exciting. Um, so all that's part of where the future of, of of gaming and entertainment is going to be. It's not that's not a gambling thing, but it's part of our whole uh, our whole complex. Um, so there will be some things there. But, you know, the world is, we talk about government funding, but, you know, I'm on the board of uh, Precinct Properties uh, as well as a couple of others. And, you know, down at Commercial Bay where we've just built that big office tower, yeah, the top two floors of that, the most expensive real estate in Auckland to occupy has been occupied by Rocketworks, which is a game development company, not the rocket company, the... Oh, yeah, the gaming developers. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. The gaming developers, op- had they have occupied the most expensive commercial real estate in New Zealand. Um, now, if that's not some sort of a coming of age in in terms of that area of economic activity, I don't know what is. Um, no, no government funding there that I'm aware of. So, you know, they are, those sorts of organisations are big in New Zealand. They're very significant economically, and you know we've got to support them in every way we can, commercially, uh, as well as uh, through the government. I think I, I wouldn't. I mean, there's no point in being being picky about it. The racing industry seems to get plenty of uh, government assistance, um, certainly under the past minister of racing. Um, uh, yeah. So why, why wouldn't game developers? I, I mean, I hope I hope they do. It seems to be something New Zealand has some capabilities in, doesn't it? Yeah, and I think there's one thing that I think people often forget in regards to government is every time funding or resources are allocated to something, they have to take away from something else. Yep. So, you know, there's a bit of a cause and effect. I suppose it's like a bit of a seesaw. You've got to get that balance right. Yeah, but look, I think it is an area that is pretty pretty robust uh, economically. It doesn't seem to need quite the taxation support that the older film industry uh, mm. does. And uh, I'm not even I'm not even opposed to that. I can see there are economic developments, economic benefits from that as well. But but it is interesting that in that whole game development area, it does seem to be something that can succeed pretty much standalone commercially if you're good enough about it. Yeah. What's your what's your view on property within New Zealand? Because obviously we don't have a capital gains tax. 
uh, a lot of Kiwis tend to invest in residential property. That seems to be where the majority of investment is. Um, and obviously we have a lot of divide in terms of um, wealth because if there's the haves and the have-nots. And I know you've posted things on LinkedIn in regards to regards to this and uh, with Labor's recent taxing. Uh, yeah, just want your thoughts. Yeah, look, we do. We we don't have a capital gains tax. You're right, um, which many, if not most, other countries uh, do have. Like most taxation things, it's not a kind of a silver bullet to solving inequality or raising money. But oh, no, it's not. It does create a sense of equity uh, to see uh, gains made through capital investment taxed in a similar way. To to gains made through uh, physical labour or mental labour. So I think it has that kind of uh, uh, social benefit to it. Um, it does probably remove some uh, skewing, although this is a very, it's a very complex area. You know, one of the things that happens with capital gains uh, taxes is that it often leads richer people to over-invest in property which they're occupying uh, rather than uh, necessarily uh, helping them to... Um, because you exempt the family home, people, if you've exempt the family home, which has always been the discussion in New Zealand, mm. what then happens is people even invest even more in the family home because... If you invest it anywhere else, you're going to pay tax on it. Invest in the family home, you're not. So, right. look, but you can get around those things, but they, like all taxation issues, um, the immediate impact is not necessarily the full impact, and, you, and you've got to look at those second and, and third round things. All that said, I would favour the introduction of a form of capital gains tax into New Zealand, and indeed, uh, if it was capital gains or, or even a wealth tax, I'm, I'm not big on people inheriting a uh, a whole lot of money, personally. Uh, uh, so, look, there are all those things, but often the argument for them is as much one of social equity and appreciation and inclusion as it is uh, fundraising, uh, in, in my opinion. Uh, so, you look, in New Zealand, do we overinvest in property relative to other uh, assets? Um, yeah, I, I think that we do, but you know the real the real housing problem uh, in New Zealand, uh, I believe, is is quite a simple one, which is that uh, supply and demand applies to housing just as it does to most other things. And we have had a deliberate policy of growing our population in the last twenty or thirty years uh, at a rate which we have not matched by building houses. Um, and there's only one possible outcome of more people looking for houses and not as many houses being built, which is the price goes up, which particularly in Auckland is, is glaringly obvious. And equally, you get to a point where there isn't any way that the bottom, call it 20, 30, 40 or even 50% of earners, can't readily afford to buy a house. So you can you can either try and pay them more, but that's a bit of a chase the tail thing, or you can, you know, force force costs down, which is not all that easy either. What you probably have to accept is that the government or the, some other agency is going to have to build rental housing for a large amount of people, which, again, if you look around the world, is exactly what happens for exactly that kind of reason. Yeah, well... So we, we just haven't built enough houses. Well, and I think the, the other problem is it seems like most of the workforce and all of the investment is into Auckland, right? Because that's where a majority of the jobs are. So it's not spread out. I mean, a lot of uh, cities around the world, a lot of people commute from outside the cities into the city for work. But with Auckland, you can't really do that because there's no viable public transport system outside the city itself. You know, our, our planning of infrastructure is, has been appalling. You know, as I say, we grew Auckland, but we didn't provide the rail infrastructure. We didn't provide the bus infrastructure. We're now trying to retrofit it into uh, the cities, into the city, and that's really hard. I mean, but, but the water crisis in Auckland 
is, is an even clearer example of this. Mm. We expanded Auckland. We built really, not this is a slight exaggeration, but we built pretty much the whole of the North Shore and West Auckland without adding any water capability to Auckland City. What were people thinking? What was the end outcome of that? We were going to end up short of water. Mm. We simply didn't provide a head for it. Similarly, we didn't we didn't provide the wastewater systems that we needed. So now we've got we now need to clean clean up the harbour, and we should clean up the harbour. But it's just another example. Everywhere you look in infrastructure in New Zealand, people sort of behave as if the gap was one that you know you could spend a few billion in a few years and correct. Uh, but it's much bigger than that. Uh, it goes back government after government after government, uh, a local body system dependent on rates that is unable to finance the jobs that it has to do. There isn't a way the Auckland City Council on the rating system can meet the demands of the infrastructure that a city the size of Auckland needs. It just can't happen. It seems like and, a lot of corners are cut all the time. Yeah, yeah, look, to be fair to New Zealand, it happens... It does happen in cities all over the world. You know, most of the big cities in the United States have severe infrastructure problems driven by exactly the same thing. Some European countries have, have, have done better. Um, uh, but, you know, uh, most of the, the kind of the basic infrastructure articulation in big cities around the world was done in the 19th century or certainly in the first half of the 20th century. And... Uh, you know, like most things born that long ago, the end of it, tired and old. Um, so yeah. we, we kid ourselves about those things. It's been it's a problem of of social control and of capitalism uh, uh, to some extent, where you privatise the benefits and socialise the costs. Um, that's the a lot of the environmental crisis is caused by the fact that we allowed businesses and individuals, we went on doing things, ignoring the fact that we were destroying something else and expected that society would pick up the cost of doing that. And eventually that bill comes home and people think, hang on, we've got no way to pay it. Uh, so, you know, we haven't, humanity hasn't thought seriously enough about the issues associated with its growth and the way, the, not just the numbers of us, but the way that we live. And business is the mechanism by which we produce and consume and entertain ourselves. So business has been responsible for that. It comes back to that thing about business being at the heart of most evils as well, of mo as, well as most goods. Um, business can't avoid that. It's one of, so that's the – when you, people talk about, you know, today business having a purpose and business doing this and business doing that – it is right, unless our businesses are deliberately oriented towards doing good to meeting the full costs of what they do, we'll just continue to do this stuff. So if you had a magic wand, what would be your way to fix the, the problems with Auckland? What do, or what do you think that Auckland needs to do to fix the problems that it has? This will be deeply unpopular probably. <laughs> but um, That's all right. I think to genuinely address the problems, we need to find a way to slow down the population growth in Auckland, and that's possibly an immigration issue, but it's possibly also a deliberate policy from central government to encourage people to move out to the regions. So the don't answer, they, don't the they answer to Auckland, yeah, they do, but I think it's got to there's got to be a bigger part of overall policy uh, that. Uh, we encourage regional development and, and regional shifting even more than we do because we we won't be able to uh, to cope with this if we keep growing population as as fast as we d we are. So that's the first thing. Um, the second thing I think we um, we have to do uh, is to uh, apply. Again, much of New Zealand won't like this, but the only answer is to apply enhanced proportions of government, central government funding to the major infrastructure pro projects that need to be done uh, in Auckland. Uh, and that, as I say, the current rating system uh, simply can't finance that. So I think it's a, it's a national issue 
should be addressed nationally. So I think there needs to be a bigger proportion of government funding devoted towards uh, the major city in New Zealand and its and its infrastructure issues to speed it uh, to speed that activity up. Uh, at the moment, I believe we're falling behind rather than catching up. Uh, so mm. those those are the two main things uh, that I would do. I mean, we've all got pet projects too, but leaving aside which ones you would do, which is much more of a matter of personal choice. If those two things don't happen, if we keep growing as fast as we are and we don't solve the funding issue, then which whether you build a tunnel under the harbour or a train out to the airport, those are really peripheral. There's so much of it that needs to be done. You've got to solve the, 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 the existential issue first and then decide what's going to be done. What's your thoughts on more investment within the cities in close proximity? So say Whangarei, Tauranga, Hamilton. Yeah, look, I, I think that's part of what I'm saying. When I say regional, I don't mean everyone should go and live in Invercargill. Uh, <laughs> uh, but so I do think that, uh, you know, Whangarei, Hamilton, uh, Tauranga, uh, I accept some, there's some economic inevitability. If you look around the world, urbanisation is still going on. Yep. at a rapid rate and there is something about cities that get up to a size which Auckland's certainly at where they continue to generate regenerate themselves so I think it's much better to conceive of that kind of Tauranga, Hamilton, Auckland, Whangarei as a single uh, kind of economic unit. Uh, it's one of the reasons why I, I'm a a supporter of the, at some stage of the game, I think we will shift, if not all, then a significant part of the Port of Auckland. I was going to uh, ask you that, will, yeah. Will, will, will go, and the only way you can really address what should go where is to address it on a basis which looks at Tauranga, looks at the inland port facilities, for example, in the Waikato, looks at Whangarei, and uh, and make some decisions uh, about that. So you've got to set up a, a structure that's capable of making decisions on that basis. At the moment, we still don't have that. Yeah, well, if you add up Auckland, the Waikato, and the Bay of Plenty, that's 50% of the population right there. Yeah, and it's, you know, I'm not sure anyone would take the bet with me, but I'm prepared to wager heavily that it's going to be a bigger proportion within another 10 years. I'd imagine so. Yeah, so... So it, it does make sense for New Zealand to focus on resolving what kind, and it's all going to, it's near enough joined up, uh, you know, what sort of conurbation is that going to be? Is it going to be a future fit one or is it going to evolve in the way the current uh, structures have evolved in bits and pieces, partly driven by private interest, partly driven by local government funding and and you know even just even just capability of planning uh, is is uh, you know New Zealand in many ways you've got to remember even our team of five million is not a very big city on a world scale um, no. and we we still tend to have I mean I'm just uh, you know another area I'm involved in is the electricity distribution network. And look, I'll get the number wrong and someone will give me a kicking for it, but I don't think it matters. But there's something like 25 electricity distribution companies in New Zealand, all with their own little patch to look at, all investing in in this little way of doing it and that little way of doing it. I mean, well, that's just a farce. It's got to, someone's got to, someone's got to resolve that. Someone's got to step into the electricity distribution system and say, no, it doesn't make any sense for a modern economy. Uh, to be doing it that way, it's it's a microcosm uh, of the ports. I think you know the health systems are the same. I mean, how come we've got so many district health boards? We've got three in Auckland, for Christ's sake. Yeah, um, <laughs> it's kind of nutty when you if you you looked in from outside and and looked at it, you'd say, "Hang on, that doesn't make any sense." And the reason is it doesn't. Yeah, well, we do things very weird here. I mean, even in terms of how we do our uh, construction of buildings. I mean, I've found every time I go overseas, I see that most cities have built up, but we tend to build out, which is part mm. of the reason why I think Auckland has such urban sprawl. It's because we, I mean, the only exception I can think of is probably Wellington, and that's because it was hindered by hills, so they had no choice. Yeah, yeah, that, that's right. I mean, I think the current 
Auckland unitary plan is a, a sort of, it's a significant improvement on that in that it does encourage at least multi-storey building along those main arterial routes. I mean, it does face a certain amount of um, resistance from residents who are likely to be impacted by that, but it's yeah. a, it's it's a nod, and it, more than a nod, it, it's a significant step in the direction of having a more rational way of, of building a city. So, you know, there's a bit of hope there. Um, yeah, well, I know there was a lot of red tape around, I think, constructing any building that was over six six levels, six stories. Yeah, yeah and I think Labor have um, implemented some policy where in the five major cities within the CBD, that's no longer there, that's no longer a problem, apparently. Uh, yeah, out of my area of expertise, but it, observation is that it's it's certainly improved and it's it's easier to build in a rational way. Incidentally, I think that does have to be planned. I don't think that is something that can be just kind of... I know everyone's popular now to hate the Resource Management Act, and there's, there's no doubt things to be done about that outside of my expertise, but I wouldn't like to see that being thrown into, into open slather. Uh, so I think that there still needs to be quite strong social control over where you build higher and where you have your intensity, it, it has to be where you are building public transport routes. The city of the future can't afford to just allow you know people to, to build wherever they like if that is not where the society is capable of providing the appropriate infrastructure, be it water or transport or whatever it is. That's a very valid point. Very valid point in terms of building close to public transport networks. Yeah, you're going to have a city. I mean... I've talked about slowing down growth in Auckland, but uh, and I, I do think that's desirable, but even with a slowdown in growth, um, I don't see any way Auckland doesn't become a city double the size in terms of people that it is. The trend that's on now and the trend you observe, observe around the world, unless you had a very draconian piece of legislation banning people from living here, which I don't think you're going to have, um, Auckland is going to double in size again. Yeah, well, it won't be long until it hits two million. Oh, it's, yeah, it's it's just going to smash along through that. So we, so the issue is, what sort of a city is it going to be? Not is it going to be a big city? We know that. I think <laughs> the issue is, it going to be a future fit city? Ah, that's a much bigger issue. And it's an, all, and I think a government has got to grasp this. They've got to be prepared to say to people in Wellington and in the South Island, it's in all of our interests that the conurbation which is holding half of our population works well. Mm. If we don't have that, then we've all got a problem. Yep. Would you, uh, ever, would you ever get into the political sphere? Ever interested oh, in politics? Or you're like, nah, that's not my cup of tea. <laughs> Oh, look, no, look, I mean, I'm, I'm too old uh, anyway. Uh, I don't think I'd be particularly good at it. I haven't got the patience for it. <laughs> well, at least you're honest about it. I think, I think that's the same problem I have. I don't have the patience for it either. That's why <laughs> a, part of, a part of me respects uh, politicians for that very reason. That yeah, they can, I admire, they can stay I admire the ones, I certainly admire the ones who, who do offer themselves and who do listen and who do try to do the right uh, social thing, which is a, it's a decent number of them in New Zealand. Mm. Yeah. What's what's your view on the landlords and the tenants thing? Because this is seems like a balance that's very hard to get right. Because it's 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 yeah. you know, it's one way. Well, um, I but, hate the term landlord for a start. Okay, I mean, what, is, what, what term would you want is, to use? Well, that is a feudal term, isn't it? And, and it carries so much it's carries so much connotation. Um, and I know words at one point aren't important, but they, at the end of the day, they do become a bit important. So they're, they're kind of lessors and lessees is possibly a more, a more neutral or lessors and, and tenants is probably. But even tenant actually derives from a feudal. Uh, a, a feudal term, so I, I prefer lessors and lessees, but others others might not care about that. Um, I, I believe that um, in the commercial world, I think our current I was about to say landlord, our current lessor <laughs> lessee 
uh, laws and relationships are a pretty good balance and work pretty well uh, in the in the commercial uh, world. And I think you've seen that through COVID where, look, I've no doubt there are some examples where building owners have treated their tenants badly, but the overwhelming majority recognise that owning a building isn't all that much use to you if you don't have a tenant uh, or if your tenant is going broke. So it makes sense to accommodate as best you can. And you know, there's been relatively little friction over that. Uh, believe me, the news media have been trying to find it. <laughs> and if they haven't found a lot of it, I think you would say that works pretty well. So it's mainly a residential uh, issue. I think that the, the lessee, lessor uh, fight. And um, I don't think there is an answer to that um, other than the, than the regulatory one in terms of building quality, in terms of maintaining that quality, in terms of giving tenants uh, additional rights, which will sometimes be irksome to uh, lessors, uh, uh, but you know, if if you don't like it, uh, invest your money in something else is, is is what I would say. The the worst examples of lessor lessee tension are all, to my knowledge, in 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 private accommodation, and inevitably where the people who are the tenants are the most vulnerable. So it's really about the social support that those people can be given. And there's no question that many private landlords behave badly. I mean, you saw this guy, forget his name, just this last week, who was head of a property investors association saying publicly that people shouldn't be putting heat pumps in because the government might change and the new government wouldn't require them. Um, yeah, I saw that. Well, Absolutely you know, ridiculous. Gee, gee, didn't that sum up a, 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 an attitude of entitlement and privilege and exploitation that that we shouldn't, in my opinion, we just shouldn't accept to live with in New Zealand? And uh, so you, you do have to tie those things up. And yes, it'll make some people a bit annoyed. You know, um, I happen to own a couple of properties um, uh, which are which are tenanted. And, you know, the person that runs them, when that legislation comes in, brings you up and says, oh, hey, we've checked the heating or the insulation. It's not quite up to standard. We need to do it. Will you tick that off? And, I mean, what answer do you give? You just say, yeah, 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 of course you do. I mean, that doesn't make me particularly good. It just means I don't drive on the wrong side of the road either. (laughs) It just means I've got some general respect for the way society thinks life should be conducted. So, yeah, I, I would be even tougher on landlords that didn't put up with that sort of, you know, didn't do those sorts of things. Housing, housing, if you want to invest in housing, it should be in housing of an appropriate standard, which is whatever is acceptable in our society at the moment. Yes, that's a lot. It's a lot better than people expected 50 years ago. People didn't expect insulation in their houses 50 years ago. Didn't even know they could have it. <laughs> so now they do. Good thing. Yeah, that's yeah. called progress, I think, isn't it? <laughs> we, yeah, well, it is. Sort of, I mean, progress, sort of some progress like is better than no progress, is, yeah, is what I so, say. Even if it's yes. slow progress, at least it's some progress. Yeah, and some of it, I, I do think a lot of it is just think about it as is that, you know, you know, there's a speed limit. So, you know, why not drive to the speed limit? And, you know, why drive at double the speed limit? Um, you expect to get caught if you do. You expect to get fined. Well, most of life's like that. Do you think some people get caught up in their little echo chambers, though? I mean, like, say, if uh, some privileged people, they're so used to being around other privileged people that they become detached from people who aren't as in a, I don't know, I suppose, a, a good position or as well off as they are. Uh, other people, everything becomes... Uh, other people's faults. I mean, I bet social media is great for that, isn't it? Uh, oh, yeah, it is. It. I mean, I did a post uh, on LinkedIn a day or two ago about this, you know, the government lifting or proposing to lift the highest rate of tax. And there's a whole lot of people have uh, replied to that saying that's terrible. And quite a, quite a group of people I know who are in quite well-off positions in business saying, well, if they do that sort of thing, we'll move offshore. Well, I mean, 
I simply posted back, well, I thought it would be a net benefit to society if anyone shifted offshore because they weren't prepared to pay a little bit more tax. Everyone would be better off, which probably was a bit provocative, but but they don't mean it. I mean, you're, you're actually not going to shift overseas for a few thousand dollars a year that won't even pay your airfare. So you, you, the truth is you say you're going to do it, but you're not going to do it. And if you were going to do it, which is the country you're going to go to that has a lower tax rate than what the Labor Party is currently proposing? Mm. There's not many of them. Where are you going to go? Um, so, yeah, it's a great example to me of people living in a bubble. What they mean is not that they'll do this. They just mean I would rather not. I would yeah. rather not do that. Well, it's interesting because obviously for this podcast, I do have to be on multiple social media channels. And it's interesting seeing the different echo chambers, I suppose, where you'd have, say, you know, a lot more people say on LinkedIn would be more national supporters. And then you might go on something like Reddit and it might be more green and labor supporters. And they kind of stick to their own little group. And the funny thing is, it's that's a, very. That's a, bit of a, that's a bit of a giveaway. I think I've heard of Reddit, but I'm certainly not on it. <laughs> <laughs> but I think I think what happens is they form their little groups, and then so they can't, in their heads, possibly understand how anyone can look at it from a different perspective. And it's all about this is us, and it versus and it's versing them, like a sense of tribalism. Yeah, yeah look, it's it's there's a little bit of human nature in that. And sometimes it doesn't matter, but sometimes when you're living in a position of privilege and power and you have that, it does matter. And mm. it's more important that those people are challenged to, to say, hang on, that's not a good way to think about things. That's destructive. You're actually hurting other people's lives uh, if you think that way. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's need, need, to be, need to be challenged that way. Yeah. yeah. We live in we live in, in such uh, such pods. Um, I had a great and, and you know when you live a privileged life like I do, you you uh, you sometimes do get that bubble popped uh, by people. I was in a discussion a few weeks ago um, where people were suggesting to me as chair of tourism holdings. Well, you know you've got uh, in this case it was Kiwi Experience buses all painted up and just with no overseas tourists. Obviously, they're not working. The suggestion was made, which we all thought was quite a good one and did some work on it. Well, why wouldn't you, for example, use those to take kids from, for example, South Auckland to places like um, Hobbiton or Waitomo or things like that? It'd be a great school experience. Wouldn't otherwise get it. You've got people and facilities, you know, be quite cheap to do. So there's some work... There was some work done on that, but what fascinated me was um, the reasons it didn't happen weren't particularly to do with us and there were some impracticalities. That doesn't matter. The thing that struck me was when I talked to some people in South Auckland about it, they they said, oh, never mind going to Hobbiton or worrying about overnight stays or anything. We've got a whole lot of kids in our school who have never been into Auckland City. And it's like, Really? And if we weren't talking about the exception, <laughs> talking about significant number of kids in South Auckland that hadn't been into the city. So, you know, that is a bubble-popping moment, isn't it? You think, wow, really? Yeah. Um, but there's a lot of those, you know. There are, there are a lot of those things in New Zealand that we think are not happening that maybe it's someone else's problem, but we just don't know how other bits of our society are living. Yeah. I think it's very good and uh, important and that you can actually acknowledge that because I think a lot of people wouldn't, wouldn't be able to acknowledge that they're in a bubble or, you know, just, just full on, just block it, block it out, but you don't. So I highly admire and respect you for that. Well, I've, I've just been lucky enough to get into some situations where, uh, you know, I think it was Mike Tyson who said, "You know, everyone's got a plan till he gets punched in the face." And, and if you put if you put yourself in a position sometimes of, of mixing with a wide enough range of people, you do sometimes get punched in the face, and you think, "Wow, I'm fairly dumb, but I can understand that's an issue if that's the case." You know, it's yeah. like uh, 
I just had it explained to me the other day, and it had to be explained to me, and it's shameful, really, that there were many people in South Auckland who were not getting COVID tested because they were overstays. And their fear was, even though people said, um, you know, it'll be okay, we won't uh, give that information to the immigration authorities, they were in the year right category about that. Mm -hmm. And I was in this conversation and we were organising some people to do it a different way. But uh, um, then one of the guys said to me, because I said, well, well, we need the national health number. He said, what makes you think we've got a national health number? (laughs) 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 Um, That's right, okay. I get that, yep. Um, now, that's not a huge group of people, I, I gather. It's not a, not a huge group of people, but it, is, uh, it, it, was, it was not insignificant. You know, people are uh, living in different ways to, to what we necessarily, necessarily think, and we're not about to devolve too much power to them, I don't think. So that'll, that'll rebound to our disbenefit in due course in New Zealand if we don't, uh, we don't find ways to do that. I mean, we... I'm, I still get astounded by how distant I am in my life, having lived, you know, almost 70 years in, in Aotearoa, how distant I am from Māori tanga uh, and te Māori ways of doing things, uh, ways of thinking about things. And, you know, the, um, you know we, we're still not good in, in Pagā society at genuinely understanding those things, you know, so understanding that there are different cultural ways of thinking about things. There are there are patterns of knowledge that are not kind of ignorant customs, but are genuine indigenous knowledge things that have genuine value. And you know, uh, we're at a very early stage of recognising that. And so it's no wonder that that so many Maori feel totally disaffected. Yeah, there's definitely a disconnect there, yeah. for sure. Well, hey, I think that's a good place to wrap up. Hey, Thank you. For chat. Yeah, thanks so much for doing this. Um, I really, really appreciate it. Uh, hopefully at some point I can come up there in person, shout you a coffee. That'd be good. It'd be nice to meet up in person. I appreciate the opportunity to chat and, and good luck with your work on the podcast. Hope it thanks goes very well. much. All right, Cheers. well, that's the show, everyone. Make sure you share, like, and subscribe. And until next time... 